Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur Show. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone who's out there, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. If you want to find me personally, you can find it at Justin Bizarro. Again, that's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone out there that's not using the double R's and the double Z's, it's probably not me, and it's probably not a verified source if they are using my name. So I just want to make everyone aware of that. Also, if you want to find us, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. And if you're hungry and you're sitting at your office or sitting on your couch and you don't want to go out, I recommend opening up the DoorDash app and trying to find any of the entrepreneurs that have been on this show. So with my pleasure and my excitement and my joy, I have another guest back on, uh, Dennis Alizé of Chicken Waffles from Kansas City, Missouri. One of my favorite people that I've interviewed on this podcast, I can say that I'm the one who runs it so I can have favorites. And it's just like both my kids are my favorite kids, my stepkids, like, you know, they're both my favorite, but I can say you're my favorite right now. And depending on how they're doing. So, um, Dennis, let's talk. You have been expanding this business like crazy, but let's go into the backstory a little bit. I recommend everyone listen to part one and part two, but let's talk about a brief story of how you open the first location and, and design your menu and what's on your menu. And then let's jump into sort of what you're doing with franchising, how you got into your first franchise deals there um, in Kansas and in your local area, but then now have expanded into other states. So I said a lot there, but I'm going to give you the mic for a while and let you explain you know, the story of how you started your first store. Thanks, Justin. It's good to be back and thanks for having me. Um, Absolutely. Well, um, just a brief history about us. We started uh, we started our restaurant in January of 2020. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. the The concept was uh, something that me and my wife came up with um, during her pregnancy. Um, I was in the car business uh, for for 10 years. I was contemplating leaving, but I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I grew up in the restaurant business because my dad owned restaurants. And that's kind of all I knew was restaurants or the car business. Those are the only two jobs I've ever had. Um, when she started having her pregnancy cravings, she was craving, you know, sweet, savory foods. Chicken and waffles was, uh, you know, on the menu. And surprisingly enough, that's not like a, a regular food that she ever ate before. It just kind of happened when she got pregnant. We started, uh, you know, experimenting in our uh, home kitchen and, and coming up with different variations of chicken and waffles. Um, and that's where we came up with some of our signature, uh, sauces and combinations. And, uh, we got to a point where we pretty much designed an entire menu, a logo, a layout, uh, as, um, colors, everything that we thought this conceptualized restaurant should look like. And, uh, and then we just pulled the trigger, um, and ended up opening up a location at, uh, one of my dad's old locations uh that he had just moved to and it became recently vacant and it's a it was in a uh cool hip part of town and so just kind of the stars aligned and then we opened up and uh two months later the pandemic hit and uh we quickly had to uh figure our stuff out to figure out how we're going to survive this nobody knew what was going on during the pandemic how long it was going to last um and so that kind of gave me the the time to to you know, sit down and really figure out what was important on that menu. And we actually ended up shrinking the menu down, not just to size, but also to ingredients and taking that into consideration. And, uh, 
and I think that's what helped us survive is we, we, we came with a really efficient menu that, you know, with just a few ingredients, a few items that we can execute really well um, and not have to worry about, you know, having too much on the menu or being out of stock of things or things going bad before you have a chance to sell them. Um, and uh, we made it through. Um, and uh, and then franchising kind of just uh, was, I guess, the next step um, into expanding this thing. And, uh, and then that's the route we took. And we got lucky because our first franchisee uh, was actually a former employee of ours. Um, and he ended up partnering up with his mom using her life savings to open up uh, our first franchise location um, in South Kansas city. And, uh, and they're doing great. And, uh, and that was kind of our test run to see if this would work and it did. And so since then we've, uh, we've started to expand, uh, to other States. If I remember correctly, you also got into the drive-through business with the expansion of this employee a little bit. If I, if I remember correctly. Yeah, absolutely. So our first location, location that, uh, you know, our corporate store, um, is, has a very small footprint. Um, and that, I think that's what makes it attractive to a lot of, uh, potential franchisees and investors and entrepreneurs. Our restaurant has six tables, uh, inside of it. And so the, obviously the majority of our business is takeout, um, you know, order and go, and then online ordering delivery, DoorDash, Uber, um, and whatnot. And so, we figured we could come up with a way that the drive-through would be successful. Um, and, uh, you know, with the franchisee wanting to open up a location, uh, we actually ended up buying a former, uh, it was a long John Silvers. We bought the building. Um, it was run down building. Uh, I think we, we probably paid $300,000 for it. Um, but it had a drive-through and it had a hood system in there. And so we ended up putting that franchisee in there, um, fixed the building up, made it look like a chicken and waffle, used all of our colors and logos. And then we had to figure out how do we, how are we able to get from order to window in two minutes, you know, to make everything fresh and not, um, you know, sacrifice any of our, um, you know, core values as far as making the food fresh to order. Um, and so we, we it took a lot of experimenting but we were able to come up with a system where we can get the food out in under two minutes all fresh made to order uh whether it's chicken uh wings or strips or waffles um and so we're we're pretty excited about that and so that kind of became the the next uh push because drive-throughs especially during the pandemic were were you know hot commodity hot real estate and so you know, we just kept our eye looking for different drive-through options and looking for people that wanted to franchise drive-through locations. And it also gave us the opportunity to offer more than one option when it comes to franchising this business where you, we even have, you know, virtual kitchens um, slash ghost kitchens, whatever you want to call them. And then we have the dine-in option and then we have the drive-through option. And, you know, each one costs different money, um, but it's perfect for, you know, every type of entrepreneur and level of capital that they have. I got a question. So do you use delivery services at your locations and is it something you're expanding into your franchises? I mean, and, and how do you manage that with your food and, and the waffles and the quality of your chicken? So 
uh, on, uh, the answer to your question is yes, we do. Uh, it's a necessary evil, and that sounds uh, negative. I, if I could figure out a way where I didn't have to do that, I would. Um, and and that's simply because I I honestly think you know between DoorDash and Uber and, and Grubhub, just the fees that they're charging the consumer, and the fees that they're charging you know the restaurant owner is astronomical um compared to this amount of service that you're getting um you know you're you're they're hiring you know basically uber drivers this is a side gig for them and uh and you just can't control that amount of workforce um and so i wouldn't mind paying for a service that i felt the service was was adequate but you know it is what it is you have to do it because that's the only way you can kind of keep up with you know this industry and getting your name out there. Um, what I've tried to do is direct customers directly to our website, um, to order from there. And they have the option to order delivery through our website. And we do partner with DoorDash to utilize their driving, uh, infrastructure, the driver infrastructure to deliver those orders and fulfill them. Um, but if they order through my website, a, I have more control over, um, the data of the consumer and I'm able to re reach back out to them versus them going through that third party. They don't share that information with me. So I don't know this customer's email address their phone number, where they live or anything like that. Um, I'm also able with that information, able to reach out to the customer if there is a delay, if the driver's taking too long. And so I always prefer that a customer goes directly to our website and orders that way. And the way I get customers to do that is, you know, just different marketing uh, strategies, whether it be putting a flyer inside inside their bag and saying, hey, next time order from our website and get $5 off or whatever it is um, to, you know, QR codes, um, Instagram and whatnot. Um, but yeah, all the other, you know, all of our franchise locations are using the same delivery uh, service. It's just, uh, it's just standardized. It's good for business. I'm not going to lie. It's helped us. Um, but again, I just feel like the cost of that is, uh, is, is a lot, but, uh, again, a necessary evil. Yeah. I've, um, I've done some consulting work and, and helped out some friends and stuff like that in the businesses. They've gone more into this space, uh, because of the experience I have, because of some of the consulting I've done, because I really dove into the delivery space as this gatekeeper and, and I wanted to learn more about it. So anyone listening in, that's why I've started the night dash or it's OR because dasher is a copyrighted thing. And there's a different definition of dash or which I thought was convenient for the term. So it is the night dash or with Justin Bizarro. I recommend everyone listen in. There'll be company mashups there and delivery matchups, but there's a lot of going into what are the downs and ups of delivery service and how can they be approved. But I will tell you this, like Uber's initial offer to the unwise is a 30% cut or a service fee for delivery of food. That's what they come in. That's their first offer. That's how high it is. Okay. So that's how they got me the first time. They, And I, I've just blown away because, I mean, you can negotiate it down, but they are still the highest uh, service charge for the merchants, even though, and it's weird because they'll pay some merchants to have exclusivity with them, but then other merchants, they gouge them out of the money and charge them 30%. But anyway, you were saying that that's how they got you. Yeah, when I first, so I brought in DoorDash, Uber, and Grubhub 
right as the pandemic hit. And, and the reason I brought him in was because I was three months old. Nobody was leaving their house, so I wasn't going to get any organic traffic. Um, and so, and nobody's ever heard of me before to look me up on Google or my website to order from me that way. Um, so I needed that exposure from those types of, uh, third party, uh, delivery services. So I reached out to, to DoorDash and, uh, and mind you, my, my family owns restaurants and they have for 30 years. So they've already been using these services. So I already have access to, to what they're paying and what their contracts is and what their volume is with them. And so I was using that as a guide. And so DoorDash, I, you know, I, I pretty much pitched them, Hey, my, you know, my brother's managing, you know, Jerusalem cafe down the street. You guys signed up with them, you know, four years ago or five years ago, and they're at 17%. And, uh, I need you guys to match it. And they did. And Grubhub did the same thing. And then I call Uber and I tell Uber, Hey, I, you know, I want to sign up and it's a new concept. And, uh, you know, my uh my brother's at this oh well um you know right now it's 30 percent. it's non-negotiable and i'm like what do you mean it's non-negotiable and then they're like yeah we're in the middle of a pandemic like they're using that to their advantage they're like everybody like and the guy was so obnoxious on the phone like i and i just felt like i needed it right so i signed the contract with them at 30 percent. they send me their tablet and i swear to you it's sat in a drawer that tablet never got turned on i didn't even upload my menu on uber just because of how upset i was about the 30 percent. and i was like you know what i'm just going to deal with doordash and grubhub and i'm just going to hang on to their tablet till somebody calls me and says hey we noticed you haven't had any orders and a whole year went by and nobody called and i think after a year somebody reaches out and hey we noticed that you you have you've been signed up with us for a year and you haven't done any orders and i told them yeah absolutely and it's because you guys were asking 30% and the guy that I was dealing with was very obnoxious. And so obviously they escalated to another manager and I start talking to them. And I was like, you know, you guys could have had a piece of this pie. I'm doing at this point, a year into it, I was doing with DoorDash alone. I was doing like $45,000 a month in sales with DoorDash. And I was like, you guys could have had a piece of this pie, but you guys were being greedy, weren't working with me. These guys signed up with me at 17%. You guys weren't even negotiating off the 30. Um, so since then, obviously, we've been able to knock it down. Um, and I had them lock it in for all my other franchise uh, locations as well. So um, that's been good. I think we got it down to uh, to 20%. Even then, they still wouldn't match that 17%. I know it's unbelievable, <laughs> but people are paying it. Uh, and I know they say the drivers get more money and more benefit from it and better tips. I actually don't think that that is true. When you drive up the price so much, people are willing to tip less. It becomes, you know, what are they willing to pay for the food? And they're already almost paying double in some cases because of the service charge and the delivery fee um, and the yeah. service charge. I'm talking about the service fees these places charge on top of a delivery fee and then on top of having to tip the driver. So, um I would argue that it, it does not work for them. I would say that you're, the greed of the measure is, and while everyone's like, oh, Uber, and they benefit from the drivers and the Uber eaters, and I get it, and I get what you're trying to do, I would say DoorDash is outmaneuvering them just from not uh, lowering their prices, starting to get their prices back down, uh, and also looking at the model much differently than the other concepts. So. I think it's interesting. We'll see what happens. And, you know, the Grubhubs and the Chow Nows and the Postmates, I feel like, are playing a little bit of catch up. 
but I'm interested to see how they do it. That's why I asked the question because I just think it's such a future and there's such gatekeepers to our business and it's hard. Um, now you, tr I would recommend people build their brand a little bit before they turn those on because they own your customers and it's no different yep. than Amazon. It's like going to Amazon, Amazon owns your customers. You don't. And so for anyone who's in consumer packaged goods for food, and that's a tough one. While it's a great avenue and you make lots of money, you don't end up owning it. And if there's a brand that becomes imitatable or Amazon can create an Amazon basics for it, it goes yep. to the wayside. So, um, and just so everyone's aware, I'm very aware that probably some of these delivery companies are considering their own concepts in many different ways. So it's just something to be aware of for all the entrepreneurs out there listening in that, you know, I would say that keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. And just because they're not a competitor in your field um, doesn't mean that this isn't a competitor to you, uh, even though you're they're a necessary evil, as Dennis discussed. So... Let's talk to about your, to ahead. your point before we move on, um, and that, and that is a good point, and that and that, again that's why I like when customers go to my website because then I own the data of their contact information. But Uber specifically, Uber, their former CEO, um, who was you know basically put to the side. I think there was some scandal uh, a few years back uh, with him. But he started a company called Cloud Kitchens, which is now the largest shared combine kitchen, ghost kitchen facility in the whole country. And they open up in different cities. There's one here in Kansas City. I've, I've, I've had numerous meetings with them because they're trying to get chicken and waffle to open up in multiple cities. And they're offering me uh, pretty good deals to do so. But the guy who owns it and runs it is the former CEO of Uber. And obviously there's still ties to with him and Uber as much as they try to say that there isn't. Um, and that's it. And he's tries to stay under wraps on that too. When I called them out on it, cause I did my research, they said, yeah, we don't really talk about the CEO um, because we just don't want anybody to know we're connected to Uber, but they are. And what ends up happening, at least what I see happening in the future, is Uber is going to take the data. They're going to see what stores are performing the best, which concepts. They're going to make their own, and they already have the infrastructure all over the country at that point to put these ghost kitchens, hire three or four employees to fulfill these orders. And then now all of a sudden you have a copycat um, concept of yours in your city competing with you. And it's because you've been giving Uber your money this whole time. But again, necessary evil. It is what it is. You got you, you have to adapt. Well, and I agree with you. I think there's going to be a lot of this going on where these guys are entering the food game in different ways. And then there's extra fees. And there's lots of different ways that these companies are going about it. And I the cloud kitchens are great for companies trying to expand or get off the ground. But I do agree with you. It's a temporary thing and it might be great. And I see it that you can get go across cities and it's very tempting. It's just how much control do you have over your brand and your business and the access to it at that point? That's always my concern. The less my brand gets away from the end user, the more concerned I have and the less I have control over it. And everyone's like, oh, you have control over nothing. It's not true. In your business, you have control over your brands and it's in how those brands are representative and they can be, for lack of a better term, uh, mutilated or bastardized through these delivery services sometimes. And and that's it's just the way it is and it is a necessary evil and we are adjusting. But I would say there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are trying to figure out how to, to, to deal with this space or what is the delivery business. And, you know, it's great because it, 
DoorDash driver can pick up, you know, a stack, which means he can go to four different restaurants in like one location, even though they're all different. And that I get the benefit there. Everyone wins. But the problem is, is the way the data, who gets the data and the restaurant doesn't necessarily get the same data to understand what's going on. And next thing you know, there's competitors or encouragement of competitors or ghost kitchens going on in their area where companies are encouraging what would be competitors to come into the market that weren't normally there. And I'm not saying you should worry about competitors. You should worry on doing the best that you can. But it's a little bit of a problem when you have these companies bringing like Goliath to your doorstep versus going to fight them in the field, you know. So uh, I just want everyone to be aware of that. You really need to do your research. It's not deterring you in the food game or from doing delivery services. I agree they're a necessary evil right now. But I think there is, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, uh, making sure that to Dennis's point that you own a lot of this information, encourage people to go to the website to order food. And even though it may get delivered by one of these drivers, if you outsource it, which is a whole other crazy cost, um, it's better to just have control over your brand and the way it's done and not let the gatekeepers, because literally if you're busy and the drivers are checking like, oh, they're busy or there's a wait, they will literally stop your thing from appearing on searches so you don't get any more orders. And I get it. They're trying to maximize the driver's time and be efficient or whatever, but they can literally turn off the orders whether you do or not based on how busy you are. If you're running like behind or you're not able to manage, they're making the decision for you on how to handle those orders and those customers. So weirdly busy used to be a good thing you'd want people to see that you were so busy that it would create demand and and scarcity but they're taking that out of it so uh the lines out of it the busyness out of it so when your restaurant's doing really well and you want everyone to see how busy it is we're almost doing the opposite uh just so everyone's aware uh dennis are you still there yes cool um talk to me about franchising uh talk to me about the, the bumps in the road. Like, I don't want to get so much into the ones we've already discussed, which is the local ones. And and I think everyone should go back and, and listen. But let's talk about now you're expanding across state boundaries. You're having to interview and, for lack of a better term, grade potential franchisees. How are you going about all of this? Like, take as much time as you want. Yeah, so my, my initial concern with franchising, uh, and I, I'm sure everyone that would consider franchising would have this concern is you're basically giving your baby to somebody and you it's, I guess, I guess it's control as well because you do things a certain way. You run your restaurant a certain way. You have certain expectations, certain standards, and you want to make sure that you can enforce those standards, you know, cross country, um, and, and I guess that was my biggest, my biggest concern. Um, obviously with those concerns, what ends up happening when you become a franchise and you, and you develop an F, uh, franchise disclosure document is you're going to put all that in writing. You're going to put what your standards are, what you're expecting, uh, to happen, what you want to happen, uh, when you want it to happen. And, uh, and then you're putting it in your operating manual. And I guess as it's basically your franchise is going to be as good as the effort that you put into developing it. And so you need, my recommendation is having those policies and procedures in place and then constantly updating them day after day, month after month. And, um, and then communicating that to the other franchisees. Now, with that being said, and that being a concern, obviously matching up 
an entrepreneur with your concept is important. Um, I mean, I get tons of, you know, franchise inquiries. Um, you know, people go on our website or they find us through one of the franchise brokers and they say, hey, we're interested in franchising. And, you know, the things that I have to consider is, A, what's the location? What's the demographics of that area? And more importantly, the, pers- the person that wants to franchise. Is this going to be their full-time focus? Is this a side gig? Is this just a side investment? Um, you know, are they, is it somebody who's using, you know, somebody else's money? And so they really don't have that much skin in the game, but they've managed to talk someone into it, whether it be a dad or a father-in-law, whoever it is. Um, and then there's also, you know, the experience. Has this person worked in restaurants before? Has this person managed people before? Um, have they been responsible for any type of P&Ls? Um, you know, any of that, those are all things that I, I have to look at. And it's not just about, oh, this person is saying they want it. They're going to pay me this franchise fee. Uh, I mean, if it was just about collecting the franchise fee, this brand wouldn't last. I mean, it wouldn't, this, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work out for me in the long run. Cause you do, they'd open, they'd fail. And then what good does that do? Me? Um, it hurts the brand in general. So sometimes you have to turn money down. Um, and, and turn people away um, for one reason or the other. Um, so what we do is we have a series of questions and a series of qualifications um, that are asked, you know, obviously the basic questions as far as location of the franchise, um, past experience, net income, uh, or I'm sorry, income, uh, capital, liquid capital available, um, if they're going to need financing, what their credit's like, and then um, do they have business partners? You know, those are all questions that we we need answered up front, and those are all in the initial questionnaire that gets sent to them. Um, once that's answered, I review it, and that'll kind of give me an idea of what I'm dealing with. And then either myself or uh, we have a person that uh, our franchise development manager, essentially, it's a position that we've created recently. We'll reach out to that person and do another interview. At some point, there's going to be a Skype Zoom call with me where I get to ask them questions and kind of figure out who that person is on a personal level. I'll ask them questions about family, um, hobbies, you know, different circumstances in life and stuff like that, just to kind of get a feel for what their personality is and if we're going to click. Uh, because this is a 10-year engagement between me and this other uh, business person. And so we're going to have to get along for 10 years. Um, and so I just need to make sure that, we'll, you know, I like this person and they like me. And it might work out one way or the other. And if that's all, if, if that's all good, then, you know, we'll go ahead and we'll execute a franchise uh, agreement. And, uh, and then the process starts, the real process starts as far as finding locations, um, you know, getting permits, equipment, and all that. So that's kind of where our, we are right now um, as far as the stage. Um, you know, after we sold the first one, and it ran, I mean, it's been over, open for over a year now, um, but we're able to take those numbers and really, you know, now we have two stores, the corporate store and that first franchise location, and we were able to look at the sales, the numbers, line by line, um, and see which one's performing better, why, what's different here, and really tweak our, uh, our entire, um, you know, back end of things. And, uh, and then we're able to show those numbers to, to customers or to potential franchisees. And, 
and I, that's obviously what at the end of the day that's what's helping us sell uh these franchises i love this a lot um one of the reasons i love it is because you're have it so thought out now i mean did you come to this from trial and error have you done research have you looked at other people that have done franchises because the standard operating procedures book the the sort of the points that you made like how did you come up with these where they just come naturally from the first experience or talk to me a little bit about that yeah so i'm gonna so there's a there's a company i'm gonna be so there's a there's a few companies there's these they're niche companies that do franchise development um I ended up interviewing four of these companies. There's some in New York, some in New Jersey, there's some in Florida, there's some in California, they're everywhere. Um, And I ended up interviewing four of them and ended up picking one. And what these companies do is you pay them a fee. It's a pretty substantially large fee. Uh, And, um, and it's a, it's a gamble. Basically you're, you're going to pay this person, uh, you know, 60, $65,000 basically. And what they're going to do is they're going to walk you through the steps of becoming a franchise and they're going to tell you, okay, you need to do a, you need to come up with an operating manual. And, uh, what they do is they'll send you a list of 200 questions and you basically answer those questions. And, um, as with as much thought as you can and the more information you you answer in those questions the better your operating manual is going to turn out to be and they basically ask you questions like they're very open-ended questions like uh you know what's the first thing you do when you open the store in the morning and um you know when you're closing out what are your closing procedures and when you're um you know stocking the kitchen what do you stock first how do you label things in the refrigerator like there's very detailed questions that require good thorough answers and once you complete that step with the company that i use and the the name of that company's franchise creator for anybody that's interested um and so you answer those questions and then they will basically write out an operating manual and then they'll send it to you. And then you read that operating manual. And then if you feel like, and it it has a table of contents, it's very organized operating manual. And if you feel like you need to add more things to it, and they also recommend things, you know, like different HR policies, employment policies, um, you know, clocking in, clocking out stuff that you might not have thought of. They'll recommend that it gets added in there based off of their experience. And so once you read over it, you're good. You go to the next step and they tell you, okay, we need to come up with the franchise disclosure document. They'll send you another set of questions. You have to answer all those questions and they'll ask you, you know, do you want to disclose your financials? What are your sales? Um, you know, how, how many uh, franchises are you going to award each person? Are you going to allow absentee franchisees or do they have to work in the restaurant itself? And they'll ask you those types of questions and that's where they'll develop a franchise disclosure document, which once you answer all those questions, it ends up being, you know, a 180 page document, basically contract document that you, you would read over. And if that's all good, then you go to the next step, which is creating a marketing plan and so on and so forth until you, it's a, it's about a four month process. It took me, uh, it took me longer. It took me about six months, I want to say. And the reason it took me six months is because I kept going back and forth and, and editing and adding and, and, took my time to actually read it and make sure that it was just the way I wanted it. Um, and so in six months, you'll basically have everything you need 
to become a franchise and then they'll get you registered in whatever states you want to get registered in. Of course, that's for an additional fee. And then you're allowed to start selling franchises. These companies will get you up to this point. After that, you're kind of on your own. They're not selling the concept for you. They're not finding you franchisees. They're not, um, you know, they don't tell you where to market. They don't tell you how to market. Um, it's you're on your own at that point. Um, so if you need help getting to that point, these, these, and you have the money to do it, these companies are great for it, but don't expect to just start selling franchises left and right. Once you finish this process of three or four or five or six months in my case, um, you're really going to, that's when the real work starts because now you've all of a sudden you've invested $65,000 and you're basically you took a bet on your concept and now you have to execute you have to sell them and you're going to have to sell like three basically three franchises just to recoup your initial investment um and so that's uh that's the scary part uh, but uh you know like anything uh, you just keep researching and that's what i do um you know i've i don't work in my restaurant as much as i used to anymore obviously i i stay close by just to keep an eye on things and make sure everything's done correctly. But most of my time is spent, um, you know, marketing the franchise uh, concept and, and researching essentially. And I'm looking at different franchise disclosure documents. Um, so I'll pretend to be somebody I'm not, and I'll request information on, you know, Dave's hot chicken and they'll send me their FDD, for example. And I'll read over it and I just compare it to what we have how many, if they're allowing area development and what, I mean, there's a lot of terminology, there's a lot of things going on, uh, but I'm constantly reading to constantly improve um, and make our concept more appealing to those who are interested in franchising. I love this. Um, is there like, talk to me about leadership qualities, like what, um, is there like of these franchisees, are there certain like moral and ethical character or things that as you're meeting with them that you're looking for beyond whether they come to the table with just the money? Yeah. So for me, that's a good question. For me, the money is the last concern. I mean, obviously, if it was I did, I at this point, as successful as this concept is that I have the, my, my location and then the one franchise location that we have. And luckily, with that first franchise location, the people running it are people that I knew, right? They, he worked for me. I, I, I know this kid. He's a hard worker. Um, so I was very comfortable with him. Now, first one was easy, and it's never that easy. Um, every other one that we've dealt with afterwards has been very difficult. Um, but we got lucky with this first one. But as far as the leadership quality, the money is is I mean, I can go get a loan right now and open up another location and a third and a fourth and a fifth and and keep hiring managers and, and keep them close by and I keep my eye on them. Um, that's not the idea. The idea is to scale nationwide and franchising for me was the only way to do that quickly because I'm a believer in momentum. Um, so as far as the person, you know, obviously that's where that zoom call comes in. Me personally, right now I fly out, I have to meet this person face to face. And so um, for example, the Arizona people, our first Arizona franchisee from Phoenix um, ended up flying into Kansas city. And I told him, I was like, listen, you're going to invest, you're going, you're going to take us out of Kansas city into another state. And I get that the numbers look great to you. I get that you like our concept and everything's fine, but you, you have never tried our food. 
you've never been here. Uh, I just don't understand how you think you're going to invest in something that you've you've never tried yourself. And they're like, well, we, we know it works. And then I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you're going to have to come down. So he flew out, um, him and his partner, they flew out. Um, you know, and I wind and dine them. I showed them around. I showed them this location. I showed them the other franchise location. Um, um, so, I mean, both locations, I should say, in Kansas City. And um, they tried everything on the menu. And at, at the same time, I'm getting to know this person. I'm getting to find out, you know, how, you know, what they like about us, what they like in general, what their past business adventure adventures were like. Um, and it just makes me more comfortable with the person. And it, it almost becomes kind of like a friendship versus just like, uh, it's all business. I can't ask you personal questions and whatnot. So, um, we did the same thing with all the other, uh, the two other franchisees in Arizona as well. So there's a total of three in Arizona. Um, and I ended up flying out and meeting them there. I went to their house, I met their family. Um, and, and you get a sense of how that operation is going to work. So, franchisee number one in phoenix is a business guy he owns you know 10 different restaurant concepts he's that's what he does um franchisee number two and three are both family oriented people and this is going to be a family business and it's going to be a husband and wife and son and then a nephew and and it's just that's how they're going to operate and i i like that because you could tell that they're all invested in it they're all excited the the college age son is the one that brought it to the attention of the the dad and then the dad reached out to me and so i got to meet that college age son when i went down there and that's also you know exciting and see the excitement on their face and they're like oh yeah i'm i'm gonna bring all my friends here i'm gonna be working here all the time it's gonna be my life i'm so excited so uh, at the end of the day i'm looking for like a, a personal relationship with these people if i can't stand this person I don't trust them. They feel snaky to me. Like they're just going to give me a headache. Like I don't want to sign a 10 year franchise agreement with this person. It's only going to bring me a headache, no matter how much money it is. I don't need it. Uh, you know, there's, it comes to a certain point where money is important, but you know, peace of mind is more important. I don't want to make three or four or $5,000 a month in royalties off of somebody, but they're driving me nuts and, and not doing what I want them to do and not respecting the brand the way I want them to, or, or, uh, representing the brand, I should say. And to me, I, that's, that's reason enough not to take every deal that comes to, to the table. Awesome. I love this. What is it? I mean, what is it that you're hoping this goes? Are you hoping to be, uh, like, how do you strategically take this on? Because I don't, and I don't know if you want to jump around states, but have you thought about sort of expansion? Because you've kind of jumped from Missouri, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, into Arizona. Uh, but I'm not sure that I think that's probably opportunity. But have you thought about like strategically how you're going to handle this? Because I feel like, you know, you're going to create a demand and you're going to get a lot of franchisees from different states. Have you thought about expansion and, and where your next steps are after Arizona? Yeah. So if I could, I don't want to say... Arizona was a bad move. It wasn't. Um, it was essentially a a deal that the first one anyway, Phoenix. Um, that was a franchisee that reached out as soon as we, you know, basically started franchising. We had the second, the first look, the first franchise location open. A few months went by. We're I'm spending, you know, maybe two to three thousand dollars a month in, you know, Google ad spend and Instagram promoting the fact that we're now a franchise and 
these people saw the ad and reached out to us. And so for me, it was excitement. Oh yeah, this is going to work. I'm going to sell my second franchise. It's going to be awesome. And it's going to be in Arizona. And there's a lot more population and a lot more people that go visit Arizona than Kansas city. And so I figured I'm going to get a lot of exposure. If I could go back, I, I mean, I wouldn't go back and change anything, but let, let's just face it. It's a lot easier. What I've learned from that, making that decision, it's a lot easier to expand closer to home. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of logistics involved with franchising. If you're doing things very standardized, like we, we try to. So what I mean by that is we we create our own breading for our chicken. We create our own chicken marinade for our chicken. We create our own sauces. And when we had one store, all that was easy because I would come in in the morning and I would be prepping all that stuff in our prep kitchen. And it would, I'd prep enough for the whole week, basically. As we got busier, that became impossible because I can no longer physically there's not enough hours in the day for me to produce as much as the breading that we use and as much as the sauces and everything like that and obviously these are secret recipes that i just don't want to give to every employee that i hire i just don't want it out there i mean it's it's not rocket science what these recipes are but it's still at the end of the day it's our recipe and so what i ended up doing was i found a local uh food packaging uh factory here in kansas city we signed ndas i gave them my recipes and they started manufacturing our breading for us. They started manufacturing our sauces, our, you know, our waffle mix, all that stuff. And so, and then U.S. Foods, our food distributor, would pick the stuff up from the factory and then distribute it to the to, to my store and then the other franchise store in Kansas City. Well, when you start going to different markets, that becomes very difficult because now this factory has to you have the factories in kansas city i got to get it shipped to arizona and if it's just one store in arizona that's very costly if it's three stores four stores five stores it actually makes more sense um because then it's all going to go on one truckload it'll go from one warehouse to the other and then get distributed to the other stores every week or whenever they order it and so i have to keep that in mind I can't just take another franchise store in 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 New York, for example, because that's going to be another very expensive shipping logistically to get that stuff over there. Um, and so, what you what I'm trying to do now that we've had uh, you know some traction going on with the franchising is I'm trying to lock people in on area development. So if they're going to go into a state that's far away from me, for example, let's say somebody wants to open up in Tennessee. I'm going to try to lock this person in and say, okay, well, Tennessee is not essentially in our planned expansion for this year, but I'm not going to stop you from open there. However, I'm going to ask that you sign an area development ag agreement where you're going to agree to open up four locations in a specific city over the next three years, for example, and they'll pay for, you know, a percentage of the four stores up front and then they'll pay for the other half, for example, when they, when they open up each individual store. That to me will work because then I can, I know I'm going to have four stores there. It'll make sense to start shipping the stuff there in bulk. Um, so that, that works, but I had to take a step back for a second and start focusing on the States surrounding me and the cities surrounding me. And that's what we've done now. So we've really taken our marketing and, uh, instead of trying to cast this huge net across the country, we're specifically picking, 
you know, surrounding states right now because Kansas City, there's only so many chicken and waffles that it can fit. We're getting ready to open up two more here in Kansas City this year. Um, and I think that kind of taps out Kansas City at that point. So now we're going to have to go to surrounding states or surrounding bigger cities or college towns, I should say, um, and looking for franchisees there. I like this a lot. I like the four uh, package deal in the city. I also like, you know, if there's area development, also like territories um, a little bit, what you mentioned, but making sure that they can at least open four first and then go from there. The reason I like it is because I, you know, one of the groups I'm currently with and, and, and we're building and we're getting into the food spaces, we have looked at franchises and what franchises are appealing. And obviously your names come up just because I know you and what a grand brand you built. But I like that you that that's not, okay, I just have one and now I'm going to compete with other people in my own zone. There's sort of this agreement that I'm going to develop this city or this territory and I'm going to start off with four, but I'm going to, you know, I want 10 or I want 12. You know, that's what every franchisee should want. They shouldn't just want to stop. And I find this really great because Recently, we've seen like Burger King franchises go under uh, franchisees, and we've seen uh, maybe one or two McDonald's franchisees go under. And here's why it's because they didn't, McDonald's grew so quickly and they did so much, they didn't require minimum. So there's some of these that have one, two, or they go in, they, they grab territories and they didn't develop the territories properly or the area properly. So now, in the long run, with labor shortages, with the high competition, these franchisees haven't adjusted well because they weren't set up at the beginning uh, necessarily the right ways, in, in my opinion. And McDonald's being the powerhouse that it is and Burger King once being a powerhouse, one of the things that they're they're lacking, uh, particularly in Burger King's case, is they never mod- modernized their processes also that you're talking about. And that's now hurting them. They haven't modernized their brand. They haven't modernized their stuff. And they haven't got with current times. But one of the things that I always hear and that I like about you, Dennis, is you're always pushing to make things better and you're going to have a brand that'll last a long time and you're not here to like try to sell the company public and have investors that are going to deter what you're saying. You're focused on what are the franchisees have to offer, what kind of money do they have, how do I expand this brand using franchisees without needing to say go to the public or whatever to get more money invested in your company. So I think with today's world, you're doing it in a better way, and you're also building a better relationship with the franchisees, and I think you're setting them up for success uh, in the way that you're doing it, just my opinion. but Thank you. Uh, yeah, obviously, that's that's the goal. I mean, I know, I don't ever set limits, and, and honestly, this the growth kind of scares me, um, which is a good thing. I like being scared when it comes to business because that means you're you're on the cusp of doing something, you know, that you wouldn't have normally done and so that's that's exciting um but again you have to it's it's a it's an animal i mean the way this thing grows um you know last year i had an entire year where i just sold that franchise in arizona but we had uh, in phoenix i should say but we had so many inquiries come in and so many meetings and so many deals that would get literally to the finish line and then fall through. And it would be because the bank, the SBA didn't approve the franchisee for a loan or their bank, or they, I mean, I had one, one person like literally the day of signing or the day before signing, the bank calls me um, and says, 
yeah, they bought a Tesla, and so we're not going to fund this deal. And I'm just like, wow, like who who does that? Who who buys a car right before they're about to you know close on a loan? No kidding. And so we went. I mean, it was a lot of like excitement, and then just boom, bad news. And then I would just get super down about it. And I got to a point where I was like, I wasted an entire year where I didn't like I, I had the ability, I had the manpower to open up my own locations. I could have opened up two locations last year myself, like another two corporate stores. I had the funds and the, the manpower to do it, but I didn't do it because I was trying to sell these franchises and I don't want to open up a corporate store in Kansas city. And then somebody says, Oh, I want a franchise in Kansas city. I'm not going to sell them a store that I've already spent, you know, thousands of dollars on tens of thousands of dollars on to open and it's operating that doesn't make any sense i would keep it at that point and so i stopped myself from opening corporate stores thinking i'm going to sell these franchise locations and then they all kept falling through and it's really discouraging and uh, and that's i think that's what a lot of people don't see and so you know from from the outside looking in you see oh this company's been open for you know three and a half years and they have you know this many locations and they open up in arizona and it just looks like it's happening really fast but it's really not um and and there's so many no's to the few amount of yeses that we've had um but uh i think i'm at a point right now where it's very exciting because everything seems to be running just the way we want it to um and you know like i said we're on pace right now by the end of the year we'll have uh nine locations up and running open um whether it be in kansas city arizona uh, texas um and then tennessee as well and then we also have one more location that's actually opening up overseas but that's a different story the tennessee market is ridiculous nashville is booming at a rate that's like new york city they can't expand because they basically have weirdly los angeles outside its borders and they're in a valley and surrounded by a river and all sorts of other crazy things and highways and whatever else they did there. And so I think that's one of the top markets. I think Tennessee from a food market, Memphis, even Chattanooga, uh, a lot of these places are just starting to boom down there. And, you know, while there, I would say there's issues with workforces everywhere, Tennessee and those cities don't suffer from the same slower paced workforce that the rest of the southern states have and i will say that probably people will be like what are you talking about i'm dead serious about this i've done business in roanoke virginia for over 25 24 years and i've done business in atlanta and other southern states and there's a slower pace of of work but while it may have existed in tennessee i would say it doesn't exist as much anymore based on the booms of cities like memphis chattanooga and um, nashville so i love it there i love that you're going there and i if i were going to do something that's where i'd put my money to and i if you're any restaurant tours out there nashville's a booming place like it's new york city chicago los angeles all mixed in one and plenty of room to grow and weirdly there's so many people moving there and living there and all the real estate is going through the roof no different than denver so i like that you brought that up dennis as we sort of wrap things up here i want to give you a little bit of time if you could you know talk about the things you've learned the most in this franchising experience and anything that you wish you would have known now that you knew 
I mean, knew then that you know now when you started this process, could you just help the audience? Because I think you've really dove into this franchise concept and you're really approaching it while there's trial and error. I think there's just a lot of exceptional wisdom coming out of it. So the first thing, I, I think the, the, the number one lesson that I've, I picked up um, is don't do the negotiating. <laughs> um, our first few leads that came in, um, I would be the one, like I would be the point of contact. I'm the first point of contact and I'm the last point of contact for that potential franchisee. And the issue that I found with that is you have somebody that calls in, says they want a franchise. So I'm like, okay. So I reach out to this person and it's my brand. I built this thing and I'm excited about it. And, uh, and so I'm like talking and talking and talking and talking about how awesome the brand is and all the stuff that we've done. And I might be talking too much. I'm selling it too much. And, um, and then they start wanting to negotiate whether it be they want to negotiate the franchise fee or they want to negotiate the royalties um, or how much time I'll give them to open or how big the territory protection is going to be as far as a radius. And the problem with that is they know at this point I am the decision maker. And so when they shoot with, they say, okay, listen, I'll do it, but I need, you know, I need the franchise fee to be 20,000 instead of 25,000. And I'm excited, right? Because I'm like, okay, I got this guy on the hook. He's going to buy this franchise. What's 5,000? I'm thinking about the royalties at this point. Sure, I'll knock off five. I'll knock off 10 or whatever it is. And that's the real issue right there because I'm too invested. I'm too in love with this brand to be able to, and, and I want to see it grow, that I'm not going to make the right business decision and and because the excitement's going to take over. And so I created this new position, which is our franchise development manager. And this person is the buffer between me and this franchisee until it's necessary. And so what this person does is he, he knows everything about our brand. He knows how much everything costs. He knows the rules. He knows what I'm looking for. And he'll get that information and he'll provide it for me. And so now I have kind of a, almost a, a leg up. Uh, you know, I, I already know what I'm getting myself into before I talk to this person. And then once negotiations start, he's the middleman. And so they're, they're known, there's no need to give an answer right away. I could, he could be the bad guy or I could be the bad guy. And he could say, hey, listen, I'm going to try to talk to Dennis. I don't think he's going to do it. And, and I think that's very important for anybody. If you've already started franchising and you haven't done this, I think that's a, that's a key right there is to find yourself somebody that's you know good on the phone that can be your franchise development manager. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, uh, have a, have a goal in mind. I mean, as far as how many locations you're going to open up in six months in a year, like I'm talking short term goals and make sure that they're achievable goals. Don't, don't sit there and say, I'm going to open up a hundred until you actually have that momentum and that brand awareness to where you are doing, you know, 130 like Popeye's is or whatever per year. Um, and, and really figure out the math it takes to get to that location. How much advertising dollars do you need to get to that? How many phone calls do you need to make? How many, how many locations can you actually physically open because of the logistics of, of where you are as far as your distribution, uh, supply chain and all that and, and figure out if that's even something that you want to do. 
Um, so those are the two things. And then, and then really figure out if you didn't hit that goal, like last year, I didn't hit that goal. And I had a goal of opening up five locations last year. Um, and I, I sat there, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what did I do wrong? And, and to be honest, it's like, I would get these leads and I would be like, okay, I'm working this guy. We're going to close this deal. And then I'll, I'll jump onto the, and then we'll find somebody else. And I wasn't working five, six deals at the same time, which is what I should have been doing. But I figured I didn't want to blow up that fast because in my head, I was like, okay, well, if this person franchises in this part of town and this runs to this part of town, this one wants in a different city, there's no way I'm going to be able to, if these all close at the same time, there's no way I'm logistically going to be able to train all these people and open this all up at the same time. And so I would pause everything and kind of do one at a time. Well, this one fell through and this one fell through. And now I ended up at square one again at zero. Um, so I've had to implement some some processes, um, even when it comes to training, like uh, our training at this point is so streamlined and, and process oriented that it's very easy. I don't stress out about it anymore. Um, you know, and I, technically I don't even need to be the one to go train. I, I still like doing it because I, I want to be involved in this in these early stages, but I have trainers now that I feel comfortable sending to a site, flying them out and training to open up an entire store within two weeks. Um, so those are all things that you might want to consider ahead of time, because once you sell your first franchise, the clock is on and you're going to have to deliver on what you've sold this person, um, which is essentially a, a running concept. So those are my two pieces of advice. Yeah, I love that. That was awesome, actually. Um, Dennis, before we get off, where can they find you online? Uh, Chicken Waffle Co., on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, it's all Chick In Waffle Co. One word. Um, you could also find us on our website, chick-in-waffle.com. Um, yeah, please, if you have any questions, our email contact forms are on our website or through Instagram DMs, and feel free to reach out. Awesome. And thank you again for coming back on the show for a part three. I really appreciate you. I think you're, like I said, one of my favorite individuals you get. You pay attention to details. You're very thorough and you do your homework and in your growth and you're willing to learn from your mistakes quickly and pivot, which I think are all high qualities of a human. And not to mention, I think you're a great leader for your family and for your business. So I just want to plug that in there that you're you're doing a good job, even though it doesn't feel like it. And we all are human and we have you know, things, and it's always progress over perfection. But I just want to compliment you. I think I believe in the entrepreneurs on the show, obviously, but I also really can see you blooming and your potential going through the roof. Obviously, you grew up in car sales, which I didn't even get into that question, what that helped you do in your business. But I think we'll have to wait for a part four, maybe over the next four months, and we'll dive into some of those other questions, because I want to see how your growth happens across multiple states. And then definitely get you back on the show so i appreciate what you're doing for sure and creating jobs and giving opportunities and giving other americans the american dream uh to have their own sort of independence as business owners so that's really cool thank you justin it's always a pleasure um and thank you so much for inviting me thank you for the kind words absolutely and thank you more importantly for you know giving me or entrepreneurs like me a voice to kind of you know air out our wins and our losses and, and, uh, and learn from each other. I mean, I, I listen to your podcast and, and I learn things from it all the time. So what you're doing is awesome and can keep it up and thank you. 
Yeah, I appreciate that very much. We, I do work hard, um, as all entrepreneurs do, and I do believe that the best benefit is the growth of the humans and uh, the impact and influence on the lives we make. So I appreciate that. Um, that means a lot to me. Uh, everyone that listens in, I obviously love you guys too. I really appreciate you guys and the increased downloads like we talked about on some other podcasts and just going through the roof on a daily basis and seeing that increase across the world. Uh, thank you guys. Thank you for the comments, the shares, the word of mouth. Again, if you guys like what's going on here, the best thing you can do and you like chicken waffles, I'll be honest, since people ask, how do we help entrepreneurs that we're favored of? It's not only giving them five stars on one platform for their episode or writing good reviews on comments. You can find them on Amazon and Spotify and iTunes and all these others. Um, other syndications, Google, and you can write good stuff about their episodes on there too. That helps promote their episode. That helps get their voice out there. Uh, anyone who's interested in doing that, it obviously helps the podcast um, uh, indirectly or directly, depending on how you comment or if it's on an episode versus the show. But either way, it all helps to what we're doing and getting the message out there and our purpose, which is to help other entrepreneurs out there for them not to feel alone so we can grow at a rapid weight so we can protect you know, the freedom, the liberties, and the capitalism that goes along with being food entrepreneurs. And there's a voice around the world that's uniting us, and it is food, and it is entrepreneurs, because we have such impact by building dreams big enough to fit so many other dreams in them, and so many other families' dreams and kids' dreams of those members in those dreams as well that we create. So that's really important. I also want to just give a plug a little bit here. We are we have relaunched the Centurion Leadership Italian show with Justin Bizarro. That's on Spotify as well or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. And so is the Night Dash Or with Justin Bizarro that we've launched. There's as we record this, there's three episodes out there and um there'll be more coming. We're gonna do one to two a week. They are related to the delivery businesses that we just talked about. Who are the winners and losers? Who are doing it right? What can we learn from them? And also, what are some of the things that the dashers or the delivery drivers are facing that the merchants or the customers or the clients can help them with to help maybe drive down the cost or help give a better experience? So that's all on there. And then lastly, I will plug the, or actually this is second to lastly, I will plug the Justin Ryan Bizarro Show, which is an entrepreneur show. Uh, musicians, artists, athletes, just like this show, but it's outside the food space. Since we had so much interest from people wanting to be on the show, even though they weren't directly in the food space, we've spun off another show called the Justin Ryan Bizarro Show. There'll be a little bit of Johnny Carson type show on that. We'll have a little more um, entertainment just because the nature of the actors and musicians and entertainers and whatever you name it athletes but there also is a little piece that we're going to deal with with society just no different than the mary tyler moore show uh was for you know upcoming women back then what is it like to be you know male myself in society today as an entrepreneur and uh living the life that i live so you know there's going to be reflection there as well if anyone wants to listen in and then lastly you know, follow us on Foodtopia TV on Instagram. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff coming out there. We are in the development of a TV show. We are pushing 18 seasons over 12 years. 
and I can say that right now. I won't tell anyone any more details, but if you want to follow us on there and you want to give us some love, uh, you can find out about details. We'll be leaking out information there. We'll be talking about when we start recording in the fall and where we're going to be doing that as the months progress. So if anyone's out there, follow us on Foodtopia, F-O-O-D-T-O-P-I-A TV. That's on Instagram. And the show is actually called Foodtopia, Eat, Love, Learn. And you guys can guess what it's about based on what I do on this show, but on a worldly scale. So it's kind of cool. So thank you for everyone for listening in again. I love you guys. You can find me on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs or at Justin Bizarro, B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O, and we're out.